everyone, and welcome back to the High Vibe Alchemist podcast. My name is Tony, and I'm your host. Welcome in if you're new here. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help support this offering even further, please leave a five-star review for me on iTunes. It just helps listeners find us and the stories that I'm sharing. So I have a special bonus episode for us this week, featuring a bright, heart-centered woman sharing her experiences on working as a nurse in the hospital setting while also having a background as a doula. I had originally meant for this to be a special offering to my newsletter subscribers, but as usual, the conversation had some wonderful highlights that I ultimately felt were important to share with as many people as possible. So I'm introducing my talk with Zoe, a labor and delivery nurse newly minted in the crazy ride that is 2020. Zoe and I talk about her experiences within delivery and labor care in the face of systemic issues within the healthcare world. When patients become cases instead of people, and where a patient bed turned into a for-profit vehicle leads to exhaustion from those who have to administer that care and the invasive and often problematic results of that ongoing pressure. As in my conversation with Sasha in episode five, it becomes very apparent that even from within the hospital setting, asking questions and knowing what to ask is critical to patient advocacy and informed decision-making. So let's dive in. So we just started this conversation off with a simple, how are you doing? I mean, in the crisis of all the craziness that is COVID, she was mentioning that she was working in one of the most high-risk hospitals. And it's important to check in with our frontline healthcare workers. As always, they're doing some of the most important work at this time. How are you doing with everything that's going on? <laughs> like COVID and this craziness. I mean, you just told me you're working like one of the most high-risk hospitals. I, I'm much better now. Yeah. There have been some very, very rough days, rough times. Yeah. Um, times where I wanted to quit. Yeah, because I've been upset that I had to start my nursing career in this shit. In this but, way, right? I know. Um, yeah, I'm okay now. I think being off orientation and knowing that I'm going to be off orientation soon is quite helpful because my preceptor's been driving me insane. <laughs> but it's like you have to pick and choose your stress, or at least yeah, I have yeah, to. Yeah. So it's like either I'm going to be stressed about COVID or I'm going to be stressed about orientation. So yeah. I chose to be stressed about orientation. So tell me. Let's start with what a little bit about yourself and how you came to do the work that you're doing i have been interested in birth since i was three years old um it stems from my little sister dying from stints when i was that age so i was kind of like very interested in figuring out a way that i could help pregnant people i wanted to help my mom and sister so i was like okay maybe i can help other people and that'll kind of make up for it so throughout the years, I kind of, I tried to like surround myself in pregnancy or with pregnancy as much as possible. I would like doodle a lot. I would watch so many documentaries, lots of TV, um, constantly watching YouTube videos of people giving birth. I get to college and I was like, all right, I'm going to go the obstetrician route. So I got my undergrad in bio and, or I started it in bio because I thought I was doing an obstetrician. And then halfway through, I was like, um, actually, I'm not sure if the obstetrics model really fits for me just because I've had like a lot of dehumanizing experiences with obstetricians because... Like just as a woman in general, <laughs> yeah. um, between like being listened to, bedside manner, approach, like, yeah. Yeah, there's so many ways you can go wrong. But anyways, so... I finished my bio degree, even though I know that nursing is what I have to do next. So 
I, and I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. So I got my bio degree in Cleveland, Ohio. And then I'm, then I was like, okay, I'm going to move to New York now because Cleveland sucks. So I moved to New York and I got into nursing school. It happened just, it was very, I'm glad it happened because I don't know what I'd be doing here if I didn't go to school. Hmm. So I did my nursing school. Oh, let me backtrack a little bit. So in undergrad, I think at the same point halfway through, this is actually what led me to midwifery sort of because I discovered doulas. So my 14 year old cousin got pregnant and she lives in North Carolina. And I felt like so helpless because I was like, ah, there's like nothing I can do for you. One, because I don't have the skills and two, because you live really far away. Hmm. So she ended up having her baby and I just still was feeling uneasy about the fact that I didn't like, I wasn't able to help her. Hmm. So I discovered doula work and I was like, oh, this is amazing. This is something that I can do kind of while I am, you know, on this journey to midwifery school. And it's also going to like equip me with the skill set that I need to be empathetic and to learn how to like care for people before I incorporate the medical aspect of it. So I've been a doula since 2016. Yeah, 2016. Kind of on and off. It's been something that I've done during school. I train with Ancient Song. It was a really great training. And then I was doing just a little bit of doula work here and there before I um, went to nursing school. And now I'm a nurse. I work on a labor and delivery for it. And I am ready to go to midwifery school and stop working as a bedside nurse as soon as possible. Wow. Wow. I feel you. I mean, um, I, in the interview that I just did with this young lady who's in Virginia, actually, Mm -hmm. Um, it's so interesting because we were talking about how all these paths that you have in your life, how they lead you to where you are. My mom actually is retired, but she's a nurse. She was a nurse. Nice. And um, one of the things that we would talk about as of late, which I'm sure you can relate to, I can hear in your voice, is the decline in just the resources, the support, and the infrastructure for nursing to happen mindfully and... um, and professionally, just like giving you guys the tools and the resources so that you can do the jobs that you got into the profession to do. Oh yeah. And you know, the, the lack of funding, the lack of actual physical people because they don't want to pay people. Um, and how you guys are stretched thin and you're doing like 80 million jobs as opposed to one job. And Mm -hmm. the focus has shifted from, um, patient care to just administrative kind of we need to save money. Oh yeah, um, it's completely a business. Yeah, and it so- It feels like a business. Yeah, and she's like, it's, it's so sad because even in her last few years before she retired, she would say things like, I don't, under, I don't know how nursing is gonna continue because there's no incentive for younger people coming in to stay. Mm-hmm. There's nothing keeping them there and it's like a revolving door. Like you get somebody and then within six months, they're like, I'm over it, I'm out. Um, yeah. So I hear that in your voice. So tell me about your training experience because you said it was so great. What were some of the highlights for you in terms of when you were in training that you were like, oh yeah, this is definitely everything that I'm jiving with? So I did, I did two trainings. I did Jonah's training in 2016 
and then Ancient Songs in 2018. And at the time when I did the donut training, I was like, oh, this is like really cool, blah, blah, blah. But then I like learned more about life and became more woke. And I was like, wow, this was incredibly white, painfully white. And oh. my instructor was very, very anti-C-section, which I mean, I am not pro-C-section by any means, just because of like the shit that I've seen in hospitals, they like right. overdo it severely. Right. But I've also seen some cases where, it's necessary. you know, she needs to like, yeah. Yeah. Because that baby is not looking good or like the patient's not looking good, blah, blah, blah. Right, right. So I felt like there were a little bit, there were some gaps in the mm -hmm. education that I got from Dona for sure. Mm -hmm. So when I trained with Ancient Song, it was very nice because it felt very like community based. They spoke about racism. They spoke about obstetric violence. They didn't sugarcoat anything, which I appreciated. Because yeah. there were like, there were some days that of that training that were just depressing because mm -hmm. we were just going through like the dirt of history in regards to the treatment of black and brown bodies. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the other points that you think are so alarming, at least that you, were, that you learned and you feel like are important to share? Oh, for sure. So I was hired to work at a hospital in Inwood. It's like really small. There's only like three floors, very few specialties, but they happen to have L&D. Mm. But then COVID happened. So they were like, all right, we're actually going to make this a COVID hospital. We're going to close L&D down. All the L&D nurses are going to go to Columbia instead. So mm. I go to Columbia. Columbia is a high risk. I think it might be like the highest risk hospital in the city. So you're getting lots of patients with lots of comorbidities and other diseases and all that. So it was interesting to work there. I'll say interesting, like the kid. I kind of hated it. But it's like, because the perspective of like, you know, mortality and all that is like tied to racism. But it was interesting here to see it being tied to inpatient doctors and medical interventions. Because the population was predominantly Hispanic or Spanish speaking. And um, the doctors never, I didn't see any like microaggressions or anything like that. But their lack of patience would lead them to do these very invasive interventions that could increase infection risks, increase people's need for C-sections, increase the risk of fetal deaths. So it was interesting to see the correlation. Because when I was there, I think there were at least three or four babies that died during the month that I was there, oh which is God. a lot. And one, two of those, there was a set of twins. Oh my gosh. You should not have lost. Oh God, it was so. It was interesting to see that perspective. But I think it's it's so important, um, and that's why I'm so glad that I asked because, you know, I think it's one thing when, like, for me, I've I've never had, I haven't had any children, and so I don't really have a personal experience connection with it. And mm -hmm. so, as a as a lay person, as I would consider myself, reading statistics about it, you're like, oh my God, this is so alarming. But then mm -hmm. when you're hearing the story or the firsthand experience of someone who's working there and someone who's been in that position, it may seem like, oh, okay, the percentages per 100,000 is like 17 deaths per 100,000. But like when you're the person who's seeing these three children die, right? mothers die of complication, like you mm -hmm. understand that, that all those individuals are people and their families that are connected to them and so on and so forth. So I think that's why I'm always so invested in like getting the voiced stories, not just like me talking to you and then writing something out and like having people read it. Because I think yeah. when people hear the firsthand accounts, they um, realize just how real it is basically. Mm -hmm. And I think it brings more credence to the statistics that they may know or they may not know. In terms of you working as a doula, 
how, what are some of the things that you feel like you do to counteract those things? So it's, it's a bit tricky answering that right now because I've been on orientation this entire time because I was a new grad. So I started in February hmm. and I've been with a preceptor. So I've been working with another nurse this entire time. Hmm. So I've kind of had to match her style and how she takes care of patients. I mean, she's been giving me more independence and I'll be off orientation on June 7th. So once that happens, I'll be able to like form my own style and really take care of patients the way I want to take care of them, educate them the way that I want to educate them and kind of just be independent, which I'm looking forward to. But my plans are, because I was talking with some other nurses on the floor who are also not very satisfied with the way that the doctors are doing things and they were like as soon as I shut the door my room becomes baby friendly even if the rest of this unit isn't my room becomes baby friendly and I think the biggest thing for me is because the hospital is such a like fucked up system simply put Hmm. that just knowing that I can change one patient's story is going to have to be enough for me because I can't change the system. And if I go in thinking that, it's going to lead to burnout very right. fast. Right, right, right. Because it is it's just like with any energetic work, it's like you have to have a boundary at some point. You have to understand that you can't give what you don't have. So exactly. you have to have certain grounding and protections of yourself because I could see it in my mother. Um, my mother is an incredibly caring person. It's probably why she became a nurse in the first place. Mm -hmm. And she established very deep emotional connections and bonds to the patients that she had. And while Mm -hmm. she didn't work in maternity, she was working with geriatrics, so end-of-life care. Um, You know, that, uh, you know, is extremely hard, where she Mm -hmm. really is, like, losing patients that she might have been taking care of for years. Right. So, um, and, you know, I know that toll that it takes on an individual to, to see that happen. Um, to give care in and of itself is a lot of energy, but to give care in the, in the, the realm of the possibility you might lose the patient mm-hmm. or you lose the patient is a totally added burden to what you're, what you're already taking on. At this point in time, if there's anyone who's interested, like who's in a nursing track um, and is interested in improving the quality of, ma- of maternity care. It was on you to go out and find these trainings to becoming a doula. Am I correct? Right. Like any, there was like nothing that was like in your training as a nurse that was like, oh, explore this avenue or do this or do that, right? Well, I was a doula before nurse, but right. that's right. what I'm seeing now, it's not really like, you have to seek out your own continuing education credit. You gotta seek that out yourself. Right. And how do you feel the hospitals um, and hospital staff are with, are with doulas? So both the units, both Allen and Columbia, I have not seen a doula there once. I've been there for four months. Hmm. So quite disheartening. But hmm. from what I've heard, when like the other doctors and the other nurses speak about doulas, they don't like them very much because they advocate for the patient and they call them out on, you know, the suspect things that they're trying to do with the patient. So, of course, they're not going to like them because they are not practicing very well. And a lot of, I've heard doctors say that, oh, she came in with a birth plan. Yeah, she's probably going to get a C-section. Like, that is so sick, twisted, and evil to say. Yeah. Oh, my God. Some of these doctors have stopped looking at patients as patients and kind of just as cases. Right. Right. Like, oh, the baby had one deceleration in their heart rate on the monitor. We should consider a C-section. 
Wow. Or my favorite is when they have people push for three hours. Do you know about the stations, like through the pelvis that the baby goes through? No. So there's the pelvis, like the stations, the ischial spine, it's like the middle of the pelvis, right where that bone is in the pubic bone. So if the baby's at station zero, that means that they're right on the pubic bone. If they're at negative two, they're far above it, which means that they're still floating up in the uterus. And if they're at zero, they're right at the bone. And if they're at plus one, plus two, plus three, that means that they've actually started their descent into the vaginal, you know, canal. Yeah, yeah. So these doctors will have people pushing at zero station and people will be pushing for like three hours. So instead of, you know, do, pretty much doing the same amount of time, because if you're going to wait for three hours, I'm sure that the baby would come down on their own because they wanted to. Right. But instead, they're forcing pushing for three hours. And per policy, which everyone is so policy loving there, if a patient has been pushing for three hours, a C-section should be considered, even if the baby is still fine because of, quote unquote, maternal exhaustion. Wow. 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 Yeah. Yeah. You know, wow. Yeah. <laughs> People need to know these things. Yeah. And that need to know these things when they go in there to give birth. So it's not a surprise. Oh my gosh. And that's exactly the thing. It's like sharing these, I, these stories and this knowledge, because where would you find that information? Like, where would you find that information? How would you come about that? Unless you know someone in your family who is a nurse or yes. who was the doctor is going to be delivering babies? Like, how would you know those things? Yeah. You oh. would have to go to NYP's employee website and look up, um, oh what's God. it called? Their policies to find it out. You're not going to find it out organically on your own. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So people, because it's like they do all these things. And, you know, if I was someone who had been pushing for three hours and I didn't know that the baby's heart rate was still fine and that I could continue to do so, and the doctors are like, yeah, so we should do a C-section because it's been three hours. What I'm going to think is that this must be bad for the baby. Right. If, they're, if the doctor's telling me that I need a C-section, something must be wrong with the baby. Mm. No, something's wrong with the doctor's patients. So, mm. yeah. It's hard to, like, get consent from someone who is in labor. I think it's impossible to get consent, actually, because the mind state. I don't speak pick specific questions because I just trust in the conversation and I feel like what's needed to come out always does. And it always does. And that is, I mean, that's mind blowing. That's absolutely mind blowing. I, I can't mm -hmm. even, I've had two friends in the past six months who have given birth um, successfully and without incident, which is wonderful, but yeah. I don't know what they knew about all of that going into it, you know? And I think that is so important. Um, and, it, you know, I think it also helps lift the stigma on the concept of doulas being this like woo-woo, hippie, alternative mm -hmm. medicine practice and really starts to talk about the empowerment of mothers and women and the advocacy for education and self-agency, but also, um, you know, just asserting yourself in terms of under knowing that you need and have the right to understand what your rights are. Mm -hmm. um, so in your opinion, for a new mother or a mother who's expecting, when you talk about a birth plan, like what is the birth plan typically? Is it six months? Is it like very early out? Is it like three months before delivery? How does that work and how involved do you plan to be as a doula? With the so mom? when I was doing doula work or just like 
in a basic sense of it, regardless of doula work or not, I think that people should have a general idea of the way that they want things to go during their birth, but also realizing that birth, you know, is very unpredictable. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you should be aware of things like the benefits of breastfeeding, whether or not you want to do it or whether or not, you know, you feel like you can do it because you have enough support or access to support and the benefits of skin to skin at delivery, the benefits of delayed cord clamping, because these are all things that are very, very easily attainable if you know how to ask for them. Because if your baby's fine, there's no reason why the obstetrician can't let the cord, you know, pulsate for another two minutes. But the patient's thing. They don't have patience, so they're immediately cutting it unless you ask for it. Mm-hmm. So, so the, and the like concept of asking is the biggest thing. It's one of the biggest things. right. Asking and knowing how to ask and knowing who to ask. Mm-hmm. I think that for some people, birth plans can be a really good thing, but it can also be a very bad thing if you're planning this like beautiful, like epidural-free home birth, and then all of a sudden your baby takes a turn for the worse, and you know you have to go out right it can be kind of you know detrimental if you're like thinking this whole time okay home birth home birth home birth and you're not thinking about your backup plan yeah so, so it's I think really, in your birth plan a backup plan is necessary too yeah it sounds like yeah exactly it sounds like what you're suggesting is educate yourself because then you can make the most informed decisions and be an understanding about the fact that the process itself is unpredictable so you mm-hmm. have to be willing to be flexible for the safety of you and the baby, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything particularly like you super important? I need, I want to, this, I need a platform for this to be spoken to. Is there anything that people are not paying attention to when it comes to either doula work or the experiences of my minority women in pregnancy? People should be educated on the fact that if you do have an epidural, that doesn't mean that you have to push on your back. You have to have a provider, unfortunately. The provider has to be on board with it. But you can you can push on your side. If you have sensation in your legs, you can push on all fours. And both of those positions are significantly better at getting the baby out than being on your back. Asking about delayed cord clamping, because I don't see that happening enough. And delayed cord clamping is a very good thing. Taking out all of the stigma and just the myths about these things and giving, um, turning over the education so that people can make informed decisions that'll pro- that can be safer for them, you know? Um, because the person more, most likely who is caring for you in a doula capacity um, is going to have more of your vested interests than someone who's worried about filling a bed because it's costing money, you know? Yep. <laughs> like, <laughs> so yep. that's just how I view it. But seeing um, other people as human beings. Yeah. You know, like you and your baby and everything that's happening and your choices around that. Um, totally. Most of the patients at my hospital speak Spanish and I don't speak Spanish. Hmm. So I do everything that I can to make sure that my patient understands me and I try to advocate for them, but it's still hard when there's like a language barrier. I think it's important. I know it's not I don't know. I think it maybe it could be possible. I don't know. But I think that if a patient speaks Spanish, I think that their nurse should also speak Spanish. I mean, I think that's fair. I have a problem with my, you know, I'm going to treat you and it's going to, you know, be great care, but there's that dissonance. And like even, yeah, language and connection are a big thing, are a big deal. Right. Even if I say like one word in Spanish, I see my patient's face soften because they know that I'm trying to relate to them. Hmm. Yeah. 
and I'm like, I'm a good nurse, you know, with the patients, but there are other people who don't speak Spanish who don't like care. Like, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And also people who are like, when an invasive procedure is getting ready to be done and people don't warn them Hmm. or like get consent. Oh, this isn't just for Spanish speaking patients. It's for everyone. everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Like if I'm about to put a Foley catheter into someone's urethra and I just go in blind, I don't know that I'm going to do it. Right. That's like, you know, not okay. It's so um, disheartening and scary to hear that those things are happening, but you also know that there's like a root cause to it because the systems have been um, just plowed over. So the fact that they become these kind of machines, like these factories, Mm -hmm. all they're doing is seeing patients as bodies and not people. Um, And so that starts a whole nother conversation of why we have to have so much of an overhaul in our healthcare system. So the pregnancies that you were talking about, um, were you, that was experienced like in these past few months, right? So this would have been during the time of COVID as well? Oh yeah. Those deaths were all sprinkled throughout end of April, mid-May. Oh my gosh. And then I, I only heard about like certain things through the news, but how with the reality of COVID and mothers giving birth and the amount of people being in the rooms with them as they give birth family and partners being there like how what were the the typical policies of of what was happening in the in the throes of labor at first they were like okay we are gonna have two support people that's it and then nyp was the first hospital that was like actually we're gonna take away all the support people wow which was insane i'm so happy that i was only on the unit for one day yeah we had to witness that for one day and then they were like you know what this is inhumane and the only reason that they did that was because all the midwives started rallying and organizing and made that change which i'm so happy organizing so yay (laughs) Mm -hmm, exactly so now the policy is one visitor that visitor has to stay with you the entire time so once that visitor arrives they can't leave the room if they need to eat they can have food delivered the nurse can pick it up if they're nice Hmm. the nurse if the nurse is nice um what else? And that same visitor is going to be the visitor that goes to postpartum with them. And they also, they still can't leave. Ooh. Yeah. This, I mean, it's intense. Like, it's just intense. Yeah, everything <laughs> is so quite intense. So I chatted some more with Zoe. And specifically, I brought up the idea that in addition to providing support for the stories of the community that listens, this platform comes from an intentional space of exploring intuition and finding your life's purpose. I try to express the idea that your life's purpose or calling, however you want to refer to it as, does not have to be your career or day-to-day job. However, if you're looking to discover what that purpose or calling is as a way for you to bring more fulfillment or fullness to your life, looking at what you do day-to-day, strengthening and honing the ability to listen to your own intuition are gateways to carving out that discovery. So I asked Zoe, how does your work currently inform your development as a doula? and your relationship to caring for both baby and mother in the birthing process. Yes. So being a nurse, not my calling at all. I know that this is like an unnecessary evil, like being an RN, I should say. Hmm. Necessary evil to get to the CNM. Those moments though, where our birth are magical, like birth is this magical thing. I've mm-hmm. only felt those during doula births. Mm-hmm. Haven't felt one recently. Well, I, there have been a few births where I can feel the magic in the hospital. A few, can't few, handful. No, not even that. Maybe like three or four. The magic of birth is most felt by being a doula. And I say that because 
once that baby's out, the nurse is like running around doing 7,000 things. And you only have two hours to do these 7,000 things. Because if you're spending more than 2,000 with the patient on labor and delivery and not being transported to postpartum, you're keeping a bed full. Right. Money, money, money. Right. Right. So like the time clock starts as soon as that baby's out. I have to do this. I have to do that. I have to blah, 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 blah. So I know that I'll possibly be able to feel the magic of birth more so when I'm off. But like everyone gets second degree tears because they're pushing on their back and they're oh. like, I don't know. I don't like the way that the doctors deliver the baby. It feels like they're yanking the baby out and that's why people would care. I don't know. <sighs> wow. <laughs> well, I I thank you tremendously for doing this work. I think it's definitely a necessity. And it's scary to think that we have just, as a general collective, kind of just given ourselves over to accepting that that's the way that it's done. And yeah. Um, yep. so that's why like, I think these conversations are so important and these stories are so important because without them, like there's so little oratory history that's happening anymore. And the way that we traditionally culturally share knowledge is through story you know, right. like just talking about experiences. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, if, if this only serves to be a testament of that, um, I'm happy because I know that it reaches people and it will help people even to just explore something more. Not that they're going to get every answer at every conversation, but mm-hmm. as far as the thought process to be like, I should think about this differently. I should look into this more. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I think that's incredible. So I'm so glad that you're doing this work and I wish you all the best. I know that you're Thank doing you. amazing at it. So what comes next for you? Um, I want to become an IBCLC lactation consultant. So okay. I'm going to, I'm not sure when classes for it are going to start to reopen just because of social distancing and all that. Right. So I'm keeping my eyes peeled for a training. It'd be nice if I could stop bedside nursing and kind of just be a lactation consultant and do that while I work through midwifery school instead. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I'm going to be satisfied doing bedside nursing. So what's your IG page? Yeah, it's Z-O-S-E-R-W-O-O. And I will be telling everybody about you. <laughs> yes, put me on. Thank you. I thank will. You. Yeah, no, that's the, you know, we need to, we need to share. We need to share and we need to support each other. Like now more yes. than ever. Thank you so much for this. This was such a good conversation. Thank you. I've got some release from it. So I appreciate good. it. <laughs> good. That is always what I'm going for. Everybody, what I love is like, I've always been in conversations with people and they're like, wow, I, I didn't even think I was going to go there. But it was amazing, and I feel so much better. And I'm like, that's the point. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's the Thank point. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you. Have a good Have rest a good, of your day. You too. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much again, Zoe. Zoe's story speaks to the testament of what it's like to straddle the two sides of maternity care, facing the realities of being an advocate for mothers and their rights as patients in the hospital setting, while also understanding that the issues many patients may face are the result of a structural fracture in the way hospitals have turned more and more into for-profit models rather than holding up the medical oath of do no harm. As a caregiver, this story speaks to the reality that if you are the one providing the care, you will have to set boundaries to protect yourself from the often traumatic circumstances you may find yourself in. You have to accept that you cannot save the world every day or change an entire system, generations in existence overnight. But it is a record that small changes make big waves. 
What she chooses to do, whether it's to say a word in a patient's native language, to make her rooms baby-friendly even when it's not her obligation to do so, the midwives on her floors organizing on behalf of patients' rights in delivering rooms, all these things make tremendous difference, and I'm sure the patients on the receiving end will say that their experiences were positively shaped by those acts of kindness. This work is important. In the day and age of technology and information, we've forgotten that it's still your right to ask questions that you deserve advocates, emotional and physical support, we can easily overlook that the deterioration of care in hospital settings affects both the patient's and the care provider's sense of well-being, as well as how they relate to each other. One ultimately defaults to being at the mercy of the provider, to another human that is under the pressure to see them as a case and not a person seeking the best for their health and their child's health. Statistics are one thing. Hearing these stories is entirely different. I hope that you will look up these women and support their journeys. I hope sharing their stories encourages you to think differently and more positively about the importance of their work. We are lucky to have them in this world. All the additional links and contact info will be in the show notes. Since I'm airing this as a bonus episode, I will be doing an audio supportive message for the astrology of this month within my newsletter. It's another big month of energy, a great time to focus on exploring what will be your path for the next chapter in your life. And if you're interested in learning more about how that works, subscribe to the newsletter via my website, thehighvibealchemist.com backslash newsletter. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review for me on iTunes if you've enjoyed this content and want to hear more like it. Take care and bye for now.